Welcome to Zap Girl and the podcast, the podcast about all things life living, life saving, and life giving. I'm your host, Carrie Romero. Thank you for joining me today. Seriously, thank you. Today, we're having a conversation with someone who has had the literal weight of an entire country on his shoulders. I'm not sure where you're at in your journey today, but maybe you feel like the weight of the world is riding squarely on your back and you can't seem to navigate around it. Well, my guest today is an Olympic champion and he's here to share insight as to what he's had to do to overcome personal obstacles and professional obstacles. And I think that the insight that he is going to share could really help you to change your perspective and maybe help you navigate your circumstances. Enjoy. Zap girl, I felt a blast girl. Zap girl, oh it was fast girl. Zap girl, and in a flash girl. Zap girl, I was back girl. Zap girl, you shocked my whole wide world with a zap girl. Zap girl, zap girl. Welcome to Zap Girl and the podcast, Paul Wiley. Well, thank you. Great to great to be with you, Zap girl. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. You know, it's truly an honor to have you here today. We've known each other for about three years. And since I started this podcast, I knew that I wanted to have this conversation with you. So my listener could hear your amazing story of resilience. You may recognize Paul from the 1992 Winter Olympics in Alberville where he won the silver medal for men's figure skating. Um, Paul, can you share the story of that journey? Well, you know, it was, um, I was kind of a controversial selection to the Olympic team in 1992. I'd been on the Olympic team in 88. um, And I had a a long career um, where there were moments of really, you know, terrific performances And uh, I think that a lot of people felt that I had the potential to reach the podium, but I had disappointed myself and others, you know, in the process, usually blowing up in the short program at the world championship. And so uh, the international committee really deliberated for about an hour after I'm, you know, I, I was second in the, um, in the nationals uh, in 1992 and I had, uh, you know, about one tenth of a point margin, but from one judge um, over this guy, Mark Mitchell. And they deliberated because uh, Todd Eldridge had an injury, and they decided to give him a bye. And so they had never really gone, you know, and jumped over somebody, but they they thought hard, long and hard about it. <laughs> but they let me go, and um, they decided I should go to the Olympics. And so from that moment started a 35 day um, sort of journey, you know, where I, I said, you know, I can't just do this the same way I've always done it. And I had to go home and make a lot of changes quickly and started on the psychology side with a sports psychologist and saying, I'm really struggling to visualize my performance without a fall. And and so he's, you know, we sort of unpacked that and figured out that, you know, I was doing my visualization in the evening, should be doing it in the morning, and that I needed to kind of 
give myself a little bit of, of um, um, headway, you know, as I was waiting for the performance. And so I needed to talk to myself. I needed to be able to put myself into the right frame of mind. And so, and that's not something that comes naturally. So you, uh, you know, kind of get the imagination going during your practices and you see yourself succeeding. And it was, it seems so obvious now, you know, but um, I started to do these visualizations. I started to use my spiritual time. Um, my, I'm a Christian. And so to, to pray in the morning and to sort of open my hands and say, you know what, I really want this. I don't even know why I want it, but I would, I want to be able to perform and do a good job. And the, uh, the turnaround was remarkable. And I wound up skating really well in the short program at the Olympics in Alberville. And then, you know, and then being able to, you know, go up a place to second in the Olympics. So getting the silver was a huge, um, I mean, outperform for me as a person. I don't think anybody expected me to do that at all. And, and then after that, I uh, skated professionally for six years. And it's almost like I discovered what I was good at. You know? So, and then I was able to, I was able to perform uh, much better in, in the, the performances as a professional, um, I guess, because I'd had that preparation. So, I mean, it was, it was quite a moment for me and, um, you know, just to be able to win um, an Olympic medal for the United States and to, um, and it, it kind of rewrote my entire career because I think that for so long I'd had to apologize for those missteps. And, um, you know, I felt like I really earned, um, earned my spot there. So anyway, that was, that was the Olympics. Talk about an incredible turn of events. I mean, in spite of being the underdog, as it were, your visualization of winning, even though you said it didn't come naturally, it totally helped you win an Olympic medal. And I <laughs> I think that every time I run a race after I finish, that I've won the Olympics in my mind and that I was just as fast as Usain Bolt. <laughs> but, you know, you actually did it. You've successfully competed in the highest level of international competition because of determination, dedication, and visualization. Yes. If you haven't seen his performances, I will have links to those in the show notes. But I rewatched both of those, Paul, and the joy on your face it, and those moments where you finished, the, the realization that you did it, I, I could kind of see it in your face. Like you've reached your goal. Like I did it. Like you literally won the Olympics in your mind, but for real. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and I think that the timing of it, the timing of it was, it was the very end of my career uh, as an amateur skater. And in those days we called ourselves amateurs and there was a real difference between amateur and professional. And uh, I just had, you know, I'd gone to the sports psychologist the night before the long program at the Olympics. And I said, I'm really worried I'm going to choke. I'm in third place and behind me is 
you know, this wealth of experience and ability, you know, it's Kurt Browning and Todd Eldridge and Christopher Bowman and Alexei Romanov and Elvis Stoiko and, you know, all of these people that, you know, went on to become either Olympic medalists or world champions or had already been. And, and I was not sure I fit in that group. And he said, well, Paul, I want you to spend 30 minutes in your room in the Olympic village and do your relaxation exercises. And then I want you to open up the blue skies and think about what happens if you get what you want. If you actually, if it actually goes well, he said, you know, there, there, there are two types of people. There are people who are able to do that. And then people who live their whole lives, you know, going, um, shoot, that didn't work out because I, you know, I, I kind of imagined that it wouldn't, you know, so what would it be like to open it up and say, huh, what do I really want? And that was just the most fun 30 minutes ever, because I, I thought this is what I want to have happen. I want to win an Olympic medal. I, I feel like if I do that, then I'll be able to you know, look back on my career as a Cinderella story and I'll be able to, you know, feel, um, and I think other people will feel that as well. And that could be powerful. And anyway, so that was just great advice. And, um, and I think that in the moment, the drama of it, um, was I, I was well aware that, you know, I could let down a lot of people who had, who, you know, would like to see an American, win a medal. <laughs> so I had a lot riding on that. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, talk about serious pressure. It, it's the Olympics, and the entire world is watching. But you chose to visualize winning. You changed your mindset, Paul, and and you chose to believe in yourself. Yes. If you're listening today, and you have been facing something, um, maybe it's at work, maybe it's a, a project you really need to deliver on, or maybe you're in recovery from a health challenge or personal challenge, and, and you're trying to recover or whatever your circumstances, it, it's all about visualizing yourself succeeding. Yeah. So after the Olympics, you turned professional and you joined Scott Hamilton's Stars on Ice. Yes. And that was a huge, I mean, that was one of the things that I thought about. This is what I might be able to do if I win an Olympic medal. I might be able to tour with this amazing show and headline Stars on Ice. And um, so, yeah, I was, I was on the show for six years um, we toured at the, the longest tour we ever did was 66 cities in the U S and, um, and it was fantastic. I mean, we played, um, Madison square garden and we were, you know, at the forum in LA when that was still there. And, um, we were, um, on, you know, the, the CBS this morning would have this thing from central park and we would do our, you know, unveil our numbers and stuff like that. It was a big deal. And, um, it was so much fun fun. I think that was the thing. It was, it was a moment that I wish everyone could have, which is, you know, when you have worked so hard to get good at something, to then be able to join people who are better than you and who are amazing at what they do in terms of the, the, you know, putting together a show, whether that's the choreography or the costumes or, you know, the lights, all of it, 
came together. And it's so much fun to be a part of it because, you know, you're standing next in the opening number, you're standing next to, you know, Scott Hamilton and Torvalin Dean and Katarina Vett and Christy Yamaguchi and just these, you know, these incredible uh, powerhouses of the sport and artists, you know, who are taking it just as seriously as you are. And um, anyway, just a just a phenomenal experience, six years um, with the very best. And, um, you know, it, it, what it is, is it, it's like you, you get to know them as family members and people that, you know, you had never uh, imagined you'd get to meet because they were from, you know, at, at this time, you know, the, the Soviet Union had obviously broken up. And so there were skaters like Katya Gordieva and Sergei Grinkov who had come over and performed in the show and, you know, were, you know, previously you couldn't really even talk to them, but now they were your buddies on the bus and you're hanging out. And um, anyway, so it was just a, a tremendous experience. And I'm guessing it was an unexpected bonus that the people you competed against became your friends and you were you were all like a, a family. How How amazing was that for you? as you got to be a part of this extremely talented and unique family of sorts, uh, some of the people you looked up to became your work family. But three years after you joined Stars on Ice, tragedy struck. Yeah, it was in the middle of this creative process, right? This tech week. And we had just finished running the opening number and Sergey and Katya were training for a competition, the Skates of Gold or something. There were a lot of those competitions at the time, and their coach was up there, and they were doing a run-through. And everybody was taking a break for a bagel or whatever, chit-chatting. And all of a sudden, Elena Bechki, who's one of the skaters from the tour, came and said, oh, my gosh, Sergey's fallen, and everybody needs to come over. And um, the rinks are adjacent in Lake Placid with a little breezeway in between. And so everybody ran over and Sergey was on the ice in the USA rink and he was Robin's egg blue. And, um, and you're going what every, it, everything slowed down. And so immediately Doug Ladre, who's one of the skaters who knew CPR was on him and started the breaths and everyone stood around. I can remember touching his skate and praying and just, you know, hoping that he could get revived. And, you know, it's, you know, when you watch on TV, people get revived a lot more than they do in person, actually. And, um, but so just hoping for that. And then of course people called 911, but there wasn't an AED in the rink and the, you know, the people came and it seemed like it took forever. They, you know, they were there within, five minutes or so. And they could, they shocked him many times and just could not get him to come back. The blockage was huge and he died. And it was this most unbelievable experience as, I mean, I was in my, I was probably 31, right? So, you know, you're a young person, you're at the height of your athletic ability, but Sergey was younger than me and a two-time Olympic champion and kind of this stud of all, you know, and so for him to go down, it was just, it was really earth shattering. It's, I think it's, it's one of those things I'll never forget. And, and it's, you know, it sort of underlines, you know, all of the benefits of, 
of living, you know, for me. And so then to go through my own heart issues and to think that I was spared that and my family was spared that I, I feel very fortunate. So it was quite a, it was quite a time. Um, and I think that as a group, we got very close after that. Paul, I can only imagine the pain and the grief that you experienced when you you lost your friend, Sergei. It was later determined to have been a massive heart attack caused by a blocked artery and high blood pressure that that was his um, unfortunate passing. And in 1995, public access AEDs weren't available. They didn't arrive until a year later. So Sergei looked like the picture of health, and here you are, a former Olympic athlete who continues to stay active. You're a husband, a father, you have a family that you're wanting to be strong and healthy for. And and you mentioned a few moments ago about your own heart problems. What happened to you? Well, I uh, had run this, um, I, I do an early morning workout group in Charlotte, and I think they're, um, they're all over the country, called F3, stands for Fitness, Faith, and Fellowship. It's a free group. Um, if you're interested, guys, it's, there's, a, there's a women's version too, Carrie. It's called FIA. But the guy, for the guys, it's called F3, and so F3Nation.com is the website. But at any rate, we were, um, I, was, I had been training for this race, I'd, I'd done it once before, called the Blue Ridge Relay. And um, it's kind of a neat stage race that you do. You lose a lot of sleep. You're in a van with a bunch of guys, and you're running you know, three different or three to five different stages. And um, it sounds a bit like Ragnar. Yes, it's just like that, right? It's across the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's absolutely gorgeous. And some of the parts are pretty steep. And um, but anyway, lots of fun. And I really wanted to get back together with my team. And the the year before when I had done it, I I had sort of been, you know, the slow guy. And so I was like, you know what? I really want to up my game. So every workout has a reputation in F3. And there's one that's called Swift, and it's run by a guy. Everybody has a nickname. My nickname is Blades of Glory. And um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or the, nice. the OG, as most of my close friends <laughs> awesome. call me. Yeah, so this guy named Paul Worsland, who's his nickname is Bratwurst, runs. He's like a, one of those people that, he keeps track of all the stats. He knows exactly what kind of warm-ups to do. And his workout is for serious runners, okay? And it's called Swift. I had flat feet, you know, because of skating. And I, I never really ran a lot. But nevertheless, I was like, you know what? I think I can handle Swift. So I went to Swift this one particular morning. And this was on April 21st, 2015. Yes. And evidently, the... Uh, the sort of pre-workout instructions included somebody is going to maybe throw up in our workout today because this is going to be a tough one, right? And so we started off with a one-mile run, a timed mile, and then we started to do sprints. We did 200 sprints, and I don't even know how many we did. We did 400 sprints, and then we did 600 sprints. And I don't know if I've ever done a 600 sprint, but it's horrible. <laughs> I can't imagine anything worse, really. 
you know, I'm in the middle of the 600 sprint and evidently I leaned forward and, and then fell, passed out um, on my face. And this guy that was running behind me, Eric, uh, and his nickname is Beaker, noticed that I had fallen and came up and said, hey, what's going on, B-O-G? And, um, and I was not conscious, and, but I was breathing. So he turned my head to the side because I had fallen on my face and um, turned my head to the side. And I, he said I was really gurgling. And all of a sudden I stopped breathing and my heart stopped. So he went into save mode and flipped me over and started compressions and, you know, kind of started to yell out, Hey, somebody needs to get 911 on the phone. And they, so then they didn't really have a phone. Um, we were, it was six Oh seven in the morning, uh, in a business park in Char South Charlotte. Valentine and um, people were like, well, where's the AD? Well, there wasn't one because you know, the, the buildings were closed. So then this guy that was running behind him said, you know, I'll get on. And this, this guy's nickname is hard hat. He is a stonemason and just built, you know, like he has no problem breaking a lot of ribs. Right. So for six minutes, they did compressions on me while medic came and Charlotte has one of the top three response times in the U S which is awesome. Um, and they were there within six minutes and they assessed the situation and started to shock me. Um, and you know, I don't know whether it wasn't working or it just hadn't gotten me back into rhythm yet, but they did not have a regular heartbeat. And so I was still flatlining and they gave me an injection of epinephrine into my shin. And, um, that then jolted my heart enough and, I guess that I, my heart started to beat and they put me into what they call code cool. They put me on a stretcher and into the ambulance and then they induced a coma. And, you know, then I was in a coma for two days and, and I was in ICU and it was, it was kind of amazing how quickly the news traveled. My wife said by the time she got there, there were actually other people there who knew and were gathering and praying with her. Yeah. And, um, so the, the next two days, obviously I wasn't around for <laughs> much. Um, but it was weird. Like my brother-in-law had been, you know, diverted to, a, to Charlotte and got off the plane and didn't get back on for his connection and came and sat and watched me, you know, with the tubes in, um, all night long. So my wife got a little break and, and Kate had, my shoes on her lap because that's all she had of me. And when I think of that, it makes me really sad to think about that. So she had my shoes on her lap and the, and you know, the doctors are trying to manage expectations and they're coming in and saying, listen, now uh, if he wakes up, you'll be able to tell whether he had a lot of brain damage or not. Most people do. And, you know, he was out for a good long time. And so just, you ought to know that he might not wake up, but if he does, he might not be the same as he ever was. And so, you know, she was praying with some folks and I think that she was hopeful. 
cautiously optimistic, you know, and she didn't know why. But at any rate, um, they had intubated me when they pulled the tubes out and, you know, I started to come to my, I was very raspy. And the first words out of my mouth were health insurance. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, seriously? (laughs) Because I guess I'm watching all of these people, you know, scurry about the ICU and thinking to myself, this is costing a fortune. And I'm a self-employed person with Obamacare, you know, gratefully. And, um, and thinking if we didn't pay our premium, we are sunk financially. And, um, and then it took me three days to figure out, you know, cause I, I kept asking why, why did somebody put me into an ambulance and not just the front seat of the car because the ambulance was really expensive. That was serious. Wait, that was seriously your first thought when you woke up? Right. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't. Oh, well, it's just it's hilarious, <laughs> oh. right? Oh my gosh, it's totally hilarious. I'm sorry to laugh, but I can I can kind of picture this knowing the outcome and that you're here today. It's yeah. it's just thankfully we can laugh. Right. And right. It's so important to keep that sense of humor. And, you know, I kind of can relate a little bit about what you're talking about and not realizing just how impactful this event was, just how life changing that event was for you. My story, uh, for those of you listening for the first time, I too am a sudden cardiac arrest survivor, but that's for another episode, I promise. But anyway, um, please continue, Paul. So, you know, after about three or four days, I mean, it it happened on a Tuesday and just the way the timing was, they really wanted me to wait in the hospital um, and to decide. They, They, we, we deliberated about getting one of the vests um, or getting an implantable, um, defibrillator. Well, if I could real quick, just, I wanted to identify what you're talking about when you say getting a vest, this is basically a wearable automated external defibrillator. Right. I decided to get an ICD because I felt like I, I just didn't know that. I mean, they said, look, it's, it's actually, it is a, a paramedic in your heart if this ever happens again. And so I said, well, let's look at the different devices and let me get something really cool. <laughs> and so I got a little, med, a little Medtronic device and, and they, they, they implanted it. And then the worst part was for the next six months, I couldn't drive. Oh, I can totally relate. It's like you get your freedom taken away and, you know, suddenly and you don't have a choice. I went through that same thing. Yeah. And so there were days when I would ride my bicycle to the ice rink because I was coaching and it's 15 miles away, you know? And I was like, you know, I mean, I had to build up to that. Okay. So first, you know, you start with walking around the hospital floor and then you walk down the street and then you walk around the street and then you walk, you know, a mile and blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah, so it took some time, but I did, you know, build up to, you know, riding my bike to the ice rink, which was a little crazy. But I mean, there was some, there was a lot of emotion about it afterwards, and and I think that 
you know, there was one of those emotions was a little bit of anger, you know, just like, dang it. You know, I want, I want a normal life. (laughs) I don't want to have to not be able to drive. I don't want to, I want to be able to go through, you know, anyway. Um, so I am very thankful for that. Um, obviously for so many different things that happened and I was able to, uh, run in the Medtronic 10 miler and be a part of the global heroes program, which is how we met and, um, in Minneapolis and, you know, in training for that, I learned about another issue (laughs) that I had with my heart. Um, yeah. I'm so grateful that Paul wanted to be on the show today, and we will get to the rest of his story at the next episode. He has shared some incredible things with us so far. Imagine yourself succeeding as he's getting ready to go out and skate and win an Olympic medal. That's what his coach taught him. And I'm not sure if you caught this too, but he really had to put himself in the right frame of mind, even when it didn't come naturally. I'm grateful that Paul shared that, I know, because it doesn't come naturally for me. And when he was told to think about the possibilities, what would happen if you actually got what you want? Seriously, think about it. Please be sure to check out part two of episode six with Paul Wiley. I mean, you got to find out what happens next, right? Thanks. Zap girl, zap girl. Zap girl, zap girl.